Godspeed, John Glenn. Three, two, one, zero. Zero. Have a great day. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Capsule is turning around. Hey everyone, my name is Oscar, and I want to welcome you all to the Space Path, a podcast where we talk all about space with, of course, room for more. Today, we are celebrating 10 years from the Curiosity rover landing on Mars. And for that, my dear friends, we are going to dive deep into the rover itself, as well as this mission, how it got to Mars, how it got constructed, all the way up to its tiny, tiny, tiny spectacle. So, let us begin. This is SpacePod singing happy birthday to our curious rover friend. We hope you can listen to us from the Red Planet in person. Houston Discovery, how do you read? In the very early hours of August 6, 2012, 10 years ago, the Gale Crater in the Martian planet received a very curious robot friend, appropriately named Curiosity. But to understand the importance of this robot, we need to travel back in time even further. Similar to the crew missions that we have seen in other episodes and discussed about them, rover missions have a step-by-step buildup. In April 14, 2004, NASA announced the opportunity for scientists to propose science investigations on the Red Planet as well as its tools in order to be carried out by the next mission called the Mars Science Laboratory, also known as MSL. The solicitation for proposals said that the overall science objective of the MSL mission is to explore and quantitatively assess a potential habitat on Mars. Eight months later, eight investigations were chosen, as well as an agreement between Spain and Russia to be involved in the rover's design and development, as well as each having selected one additional investigation. So, in short, ten investigations were chosen to participate in the rover's mission, two of them being from international partners. Now that the science to be done was chosen, the next thing to see is the landing site. In June of 2006, more scientists from around the world compiled a 100 potential landing site list. This was decided by the use of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, a satellite that orbits the Red Planet and helps us get a glimpse of the whole planet without having to be physically in it. The 100 landing site list was reduced to 7 sites in September of 2008. A couple of months later, in November, the list was of four. From this four finalists, only one would be eventually chosen. Finally, in July of 2011, the list became of two, and eventually the final selection of the landing site was none other than the Gale Crater. But why was this chosen as a landing site? What was so interesting about this crater that it was so importantly to designate it as the landing site for this Mars mission. Well, the Gale Crater formed sometime between 3.5 billion years ago and 3.8 billion years ago due to a meteor strike during its early days. The impact punched a hole in the terrain which caused the ejection of rocks and soils, but most importantly was the very signs of water evidence around the region, which could mean that there was a formation of life as we know it during its past. 
And if water was evidently a factor in the Red's planet's history, it means that minerals such as sulfates and clays could exist because of this. And because of the consequences of the impact of the meteor, the study of minerals was much easier to do so without having to make so many holes and drills and consume more power from, of course, the rover itself. For this reason, and other multiple clues that lead to a possible conclusion that Mars could have been a habitable planet at some point in its history, there was the worth shot for it to give it as the landing site. And the only way to be sure about this was to study it from up close. Alright, we got the science, we got the landing site. That means that there's only one more step required before the launch itself. That, my friends, is the assembling of the rover itself, aka the fun part. For the engineers at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, a NASA center where robots and probes are built for NASA, they spent months, even while the landing selection was still in process, in a special room called the Clean Room. A super sanitized room where in order to enter you have to wear a special suit to prevent cross-contamination from the outside of the building. And you might as well interpret it as kind of like going inside a kitchen, um, just that instead of essentially being a kitchen where you can, you know, cook or bake whatever you want, you instead build robots and other instruments that go up into space. So in this building, they built it, of course, and tested the essentials of the rover. Obviously, various partners also built other components, mostly being the instruments for the science to be made on multiple locations. But all of them eventually came to the Jet Propulsion Lab to be installed on the rover at some point. So how does the rover work? Well, the rover is able to move through its six wheels, each of them containing driver motors, which is a motor solely dedicated to move the wheel in this case of the rover itself and to be able to move into whatever direction is it required to do so. The wheels are made of 0.5 meters in diameter of aluminum. Now the front and the back wheels all have steering motors which allow the rover to turn in different directions as it wishes. Just like a car, the rover contains a suspension system which is this magic component that allows the rover to keep its six wheels touching the ground and defeating the rocky and uneven terrain of the red planet itself. In a flat terrain, it has a speed of 4 centimeters per second, but it can reach an average speed of less than half of that when in autonomous control. What makes all of this mobility unit unique is that this unit not only allows the rover to drive, but also to land safely on the surface which the simple fact of being able to land and drive at the same time is something innovative of itself. Aside from the mobility unit, the rover also contains multiple other units that help out carry its mission. The rover arm and the turret are another interesting unit of engineering. Located at the end of the rover's arm is a turret that holds two science instruments and three other devices. And essentially, the five components work together to study soil and rock compositions as well as scoop soil samples and to even brush off some of the Martian dust. To power up the robot, a battery called the Multi-Mission Radioisotope Thermoelectric Generator, MMRTG, was supplied by the U.S. Department of Energy. Wait a minute, are you, are you telling me that this sucker is nuclear? Well, the battery is nuclear. 
So how it works is through the use of plutonium, specifically the 238-dioxide one, and a set of solid-state thermocouples that convert the plutonium's heat energy to electricity. The rover itself is not nuclear, it's electrical. And the best part is that we don't depend on the 1.21 gigawatts to power it up. Plus, there is no need to worry about it. NASA has used these types of batteries multiple times. So it's safe to say that with a whole set of experience under the belt, they know how to handle it with care. Even the battery itself is covered in several layers of protecting material. So in the case of there was an explosion with the battery during the launch site, you would not suffer so many of the radiation because of the protection layers that were holding up the whole battery itself. To communicate with ground control, the robot contains three antennas for telecommunications. Two communicate with NASA's powerful deep space network, and the other one is to communicate with the Mars orbiters, and this is how the rover is able to stay in touch with Earth even if the slightest malfunction could occur. As old as the desire for humans to explore, navigation is important. And even in another planet, this is still the number one requirement which is why two sets of cameras were positioned. The navigation cameras, navcams, located up high in the mast sill of the rover, and the hazard avoidance cameras, hascams, located down low in the rover for obvious reasons. With this, it's easier to explore Mars without having a catastrophic failure every one millimeter. Naturally, since this is a robot we're talking about, we have computers on board. Actually, two pair of computers which come in handy to use one at a time while the other cools off as this is a complicated machinery. In addition to the software used on the computers on board the rover to the test, the flight software also monitors the status and health of the spacecraft as well as the rover during all phases of the mission, checks the presence of commands to execute, performs communication and functions, and controls spacecraft activities. Now, for the science tasks to be done, we essentially have tools such as cameras, which most of them are used to take pictures of the whole panorama of the Martian surface, where the robot is going to land, essentially, and, of course, what the rover is actually picking up with its arm. We also have radiation sensors, atmospheric sensors, and, of course, spectrometers. Finally, but not less importantly, we have the thermal control system, which is what gives overall the rover's ability to operate on harsh conditions. Combine all these systems together, adding the tools and code necessary for science, and essentially you get an otherworldly lab on wheels, which is kind of what the name indicates, a Mars science laboratory, of course, driving on Mars. I just, I keep having this nagging feeling that I've forgotten something. Hey, if you forgot it, it probably wasn't all that important. Yeah, I guess. Right, the famous send your name to Mars chips. So, in the years preparing to launch, NASA made a participation program online called the Send Your Name to Mars, in which more than 1.24 million names were submitted online and carved into a dime-sized chip. In addition, more than 20,000 visitors to the Jet Propulsion Lab and NASA's Kennedy Space Center wrote their names on pages that had to be scanned and reproduced at microscopic scale on another chip. Months later, on June 22, 2011, the rover is finally shipped to Florida to board its rocket and to prepare its journey to another planet. 
But still, before that, even more testing and assembly was required. You see, the rover building is just the half of the whole operation. Of course, we are talking about the assembling procedure. There still needs to be a powerful rocket to transport it from Earth to Mars. So for that, the United Launch Alliance, a joint venture of Lockheed Martin and Boeing Company, offered their powerful Atlas V 541 rocket. Rocket consists of a spacious payload fitting of 5 meters, a 4 solid rocket boosters, and 1 Centaur upper stage, hence the number 541. All of these components are attached to an Atlas booster, which is the one that essentially allows it to get to Earth orbit. Aside from the rocket to get to Mars, there is something else important here, and that is the lander. Otherwise, the rover would still be stuck inside its vehicle, and practically it will be useless. So, Mars is a very interesting planet since there is a very thin atmosphere, which means that unlike landing on the surface of, say, the moon, where you just need to worry about the surface itself, like the terrain, here we need to worry about two things. So, how do we beat it? Easy. If anything, NASA has learned over the years is that to get to the red planet, a heat shield is required for the task. But it's not just the atmosphere itself. Landing on Mars is something very tricky, and to deliver safely a rover, the engineers in Kennedy Space Center proposed something very interesting. A sky crane. A 8-powered rocket structure that would lower the rover through the use of nylon cords enough for it to be dropped at a safe distance and power away to begin its mission. Now it's worth mentioning that this method of landing the rover was going to be used for the first time, and in previous missions it was done in a very different way, which if they were to reapply it in this mission, it wouldn't be physically or engineeringly possible because of the weight of the rover that was going to be given right now on this mission. Alright, so we got the rover, we got the rocket, and we got the delivery method, and finally all of them were assembled together. It's time to launch. And on November 26, 2011, at 10.02 a.m. Eastern Standard seconds. Time, liftoff occurred from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Atlas V with curiosity. Seeking clues to the planetary puzzle about life on Mars. Mars would last about nine months. So in the meantime, let's discuss the name of the rover. How did Curiosity get to be named Curiosity? The rover's name was suggested by the winning entrant in a national naming contest conducted among U.S. school students. More than 9,000 students, ages 5 through 18, submitted entries in late of 2008 and early 2009. An essay by Clara Ma of Lenexa, Kansas, a 12-year-old 6th grader at the time, was selected by NASA in May of 2009. 
So with the power of editing from this podcast, we are now nine months into the mission and we have finally reached our red destination. On August 6, 2012, Touchdown was confirmed and it delivered in perfect conditions the Curiosity rover. On the 13th of the same month and the same year, U.S. President Barack Obama called from the Air Force One to congratulate the Curiosity team and said, you guys are examples of American know-how and ingenuity. It's really an amazing accomplishment. The rover itself wouldn't drive around until August 22, 2012, and here is where the mission officially began. During its first activities, it included checking the Martian temperatures to make sure that they didn't require restrictions on operations, test communications with Earth using the high-gain antenna, test communications with Earth and orbiting spacecraft using the UHF antenna, which, for those of you who don't know, the UHF antenna is just like saying like a smaller frequency for broadcasting, in this case, data from the rover itself to a spacecraft. And of course, the spacecraft will just bounce it back to Earth. Unfold the mass carrying the panoramic and navigation cameras and some of the science instruments and take images as soon as possible after landing and of course, helping mission controllers pinpoint the rover's precise location based on ground images, orbital image, and the length of time it takes for signals to travel between the rover and orbiting spacecraft. Since that day, Curiosity has been working on its scientific objectives, which are essentially divided into four main goals. Determine whether life arose on Mars, characterize the climate of Mars, characterize the geology of Mars, and prepare for human exploration. About one year into the surface mission and having assessed that ancient Mars could have been hospitable to microbial life, the MSL mission objectives evolved to developing predictive models for the preservation process of organic compounds and biomolecules as well as a branch of paleontology called the Pavoni, was also added to the mission objectives. Now, to finish off with all of this, the region that, of course, the Mars rover is set to explore, or is exploring right now, has been multiple times compared to the Four Corners region of the North American West, which is an interesting fact because we're talking about that the same region on Earth is similar in ways to this crater on another planet. And that just brightens up the fact that we're talking about another planet containing life outside from Earth, at least in some point of its history, and that, you know, maybe with the technological advances that we have every year and for a foreseeable future, we might even get it back to life at some point. You know, with the whole terraform Mars again. Discovery Houston, recommend a vector transfer to the BFS. Curiosity has been a great help in trying to understand the Red Planet. The multiple discoveries it has made during its time operating gives us a better view into how we should explore Mars in the future. And with this information, it's also how NASA was able to develop the Perseverance rover. But you know, the most fun part and interesting part about the Curiosity rover is its ability to take selfies to its robotic arm, something no other rover had done so before. This selfies, besides looking so cool, it also helps us take a look at the whole rover and how different it can look from, say, day 1 to year 10. In the description of this episode, I'll be attaching links where you can read about the multiple discoveries made by the Curiosity rover and where you can find more information about the rover itself and even its social media so you can follow our curious rover friend. 
And that's the essay that gives this rover its name. Remember, curiosity is the passion that drives us through our everyday lives. My name's Oscar. Be sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram. The link to both of them will be down in the description. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. And I'll talk to you in the future. Peace. We'll stop. Roger, we'll stop, Discovery. Welcome back. A great ending to the new beginning.